At the age of 13, Dennis Kinlaw responded to a message by Henry Clay Morrison on entire sanctification. His encounter with Jesus Christ at the altar of Indian Springs Holiness Camp Meeting transformed his life. We hope you enjoy this message on holiness from Dr. Kinlaw. I would like to give you not just a retailing of, just simply a retelling of what the revival meant to me and my experience in it, but I'd like to talk for a few moments about revival as a biblical concept, because it is a biblical concept. If you think about the long history of the people of God from Abraham down to the present time, As you live with the Old Testament, you find that there is a tendency in the heart of God's people to wander and to cool off in their devotion to him and even to turn to alternatives to God. And so in the Old Testament, you get this story of the people declining away from righteousness and then being drawn back. And again and again, it is revival that brings them back, like uh, you get uh, a passage like this. Just let me give you a biblical passage to uh, sort of be a point of reference for us. The 85th Psalm. The psalmist is speaking about the past. And he said, Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. But then, having looked at the past and the blessings of God, he talks about the present. And he says, Restore us again, O God, our Savior. And the Greek, the Hebrew word there is turn us again. And of course, the reason is that they had turned away from God. So he says, turn us back, turn us again to you. O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So you see, he looks back on the past blessings of God, And now he sees the need again. And so he's crying out for God to look in mercy and grace and favor again on his people. And then he speaks about what his attitude and our attitude should be. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises, this is a promise of God, he promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Now as I read that, the way I understand it is that God is very much closer to us than we oftentimes think he is. When we've turned our faces away and we think he's very far away, he really has not moved. He is near. We have just shut off our lines of communication with him and he is there waiting to break in on us, as he did on on the college in 1970. And so he concludes, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. 
The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. So you see, the psalmist is, the heart of his prayer is, will you not revive us again? If you will look at the Old Testament, you will remember that uh, turning away and then being brought back, like in the case of the King Ahaz, who shut the temple in Jerusalem and built altars to foreign gods in Jerusalem in the holy city so that the holy city was a site not of adoration of God but was a site for uh, idolatrous worship and all that went with it. But then his son came along, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah had a heart for God and so he insisted the temple be opened again. He insisted that uh, the, the altars be rebuilt and I love the line where it says, and when the offering began on the altar that had been rebuilt, the song of the Lord began also. So one of the marks of revival is always joy and always singing. Uh, I never heard singing in Hughes Auditorium like I heard during that time. And it was not, uh, the amazing thing was how ordered things were during all of that. Now, an administrator scared to death of things he doesn't control. <laughs> and the thing I knew when it got started was I was not in control, but I was responsible for what was happening. And if anything untoward happened, I was the one who'd have to answer for it, and I was out of control. But it was amazing the way with some senior professors, spiritual men, and some others, and the, the Holy Spirit, there was... A, the loudest silence I've ever heard in my life was during that time. Now, I heard joyous singing, but I also heard that Sunday morning. The only way I knew how to describe it was the loudest silence I had ever heard at the presence of God as, it, it just as he manifested himself there. You remember the story of uh, Manasseh did the same thing that uh, Ahaz did. And then uh, his son came along, Josiah, and uh, the law was discovered and a revival came. So revival is a biblical concept. When the people of God turn their faces away, that God wants to bring them again to that same devotion and so that same, or maybe to even greater devotion than they've known before. Now, revival is not only a biblical concept, it is a part of the American national heritage. Now, not many people will tell you this, but let me just talk about it from the point of education. I was fascinated that revival began so oftentimes in a college rather than in a church. I think one of the reasons is that in a college you have open young people that are open and they're raising questions about what they're to do with their lives. And so they have a susceptibility to God that oftentimes it, you do not have in the, the typical church with, uh, with older people who have become sort of hardened in their ways. But revival has been a part of American college life from the beginning of the United States. When the United States became an independent nation in 1776, there were nine colleges in this country, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Columbia, Princeton, uh, uh, Rutgers, Brown. Uh, they came from all denominations too, Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, uh, uh, Anglican, uh, they crossed the board. 
But out of the six colleges that were in this country when the United States was founded, out of the nine, six of them either were born in revival or else they were deeply influenced by revival. Take, for instance, Princeton University. The first five presidents were evangelists, one of whom was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is a great name in New England revival, you know. So that revival and education are not, are not to be opposed to each other. In fact, the most of the, 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 most, the more revivalistic denominations in America are the ones that produce the most colleges in the United States. You see, I think in our background, in the Wesleyan background in the United States, the Methodists in this country uh, founded some four to five hundred colleges in the United States. So when God quickens the heart, one of the things you want to do is get prepared to serve him. And how can you be prepared to serve him if you're not educated and trained? And so the idea that revival and education don't go together just does not fit the facts in the American in, in American history. Now, I never thought of that until after 1970 as I was trying to come to understand what was taking place here and how it fitted with an academic program. And the interesting, you know, I was sort of, uh, I was brand new in the job. I was not an educator. I had been a pastor and then had gone to graduate school and had, was teaching at the seminary when I became president. I was not trained for my job, and I thought, how will I answer to the rest of the academic world, educational world, that we cancel classes for a week? You know, that, that, that almost that, that embarrassed me, you know. I wondered what I would say. But the interesting thing is that, that there's a very real sense in which the increasing seriousness of academic life at Asbury College was deeply influenced by the revival in 1970. There came additions to faculty, an improvement in faculty, an improvement in educational programs, and a serious improvement in student, in student response to their educational program. So that we began to do, uh, kids began to get a much better education through the 70s, and I don't have any question but that the 1970 revival was a, was a key part in it. So uh, across the years, Asbury has uh, had these movements of the Spirit, and uh, we give grateful praise for them, and we would like for God to do it again. Now let me make a comment about my relationship to it. <clears throat> I got up on Tuesday February 3rd, about 5 o'clock in the morning, drove to Louisville and caught a plane. And uh, 5 o'clock that afternoon, I landed in Banff, Alberta, up in your territory. And I walked into the hotel where I was to register for a conference. And it was 5 o'clock at uh, that time in Canada, 7 o'clock in Wilmore in the evening. And as I registered in the hotel, the person who registered me said, Oh, Mr. Kenlaw you have a call, an emergency call, a telephone call. Now, as I said to you earlier, in 1970, the campuses were erupting with uh, lock-ins for presidents and uh, attempts to burn buildings down and this kind of thing, rioting on campus. So when I heard this, you have an emergency phone call and looked at the name, it was my academic dean. 
And so I thought, what has happened? So I walked straight across the lobby to a telephone, put the call through, and I called his home, and in the good providence of God, I got him. He was home for supper for a few minutes. And uh, I said, Custer, what's the problem? Now, Custer was an old pro. He had done everything from teach a one-room schoolhouse to be a superintendent of public instruction and was head of the education department here, and then he became academic dean. He was an old Marine, and he was tough, <laughs> and canny and smart. He could handle most anything. I learned a whale of a lot from him. I'll then make a digression. As I told you, I was ignorant, and I'd get an idea about something academically, and I'd go in to see Custer and sit and talk to him. And this old guy, you know, he's very respectful to me in good military fashion. I was younger than he was, but he was very respectful. Always called me Dr. Kenlaw. But uh, I'd start spin out what I was thinking, and I'd watch him move in his chair. And when his body moved, I knew I was dead wrong <laughs> and better back out as fast as I could. He was just a canny, shrewd, uh, and a good man. And I said to him, Custer, what's the problem? He said, it's chapel. And I said, what do you mean, chapel? He said, well, it isn't over yet. I said, what do you mean it isn't over yet? It's 7 o'clock at night and chapel ends at 10.50. He said, yes, I know. It's supposed to end at 10.50, but it didn't. He said, there are more people in Hughes Auditorium now at 7 o'clock than there were at 10 o'clock this morning. And I said, Custer, what happened? He said, well, I did not preach. He was the speaker. He said, I did not preach, I spoke. I decided just to share my testimony. And then he said, I decided to open it up for, other, for students to share their testimony as to what God was doing in their lives. And he said, about five minutes before the close of the chapel, the philosophy professor came to me and said, Custer, God is here. If you give an invitation, there will be a response. Now, it was the philosophy professor who told him. And he said, so we gave her an invitation. And that invitation, the response was eight days. Now, uh, he said, uh, this, is, this, this is what happened today. And he said, Hughes is full. And they're rejoicing. And he said, people are seeking God. And so he said, uh, you know, Dr. Kenlaw... The TV, one of the TV men in, Lo in Lexington has asked for the privilege of bringing in a, 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 a team of photographers to get the story to put on the TV. And my reaction was, oh no. You know, a bunch of worldly TV media people coming in with their cigarettes and all the rest into that holy place. I said, keep them out. And Custer said, well, you know, we've talked about it and prayed about it here, and we think God could use it. I said, well, Custer, I trust you totally. You're there. I'm not there. Uh, anything you do, I'm behind you, and I will trust you on that. Well, you see the result here. That night on the major TV station in Lexington, the guy said, I've seen about everything there is to see in 34 years of news work, but he said, today I saw something I've never seen before. Please give me two and a half minutes. And that started it. Now, I was in Canada. I didn't get free until Thursday. 
and Thursday I caught a plane to fly back. But I kept in touch with Custer, the dean, by telephone. And you heard what I said here. It was as if the Holy Spirit came right through the telephone line and that telephone booth would be filled. Now, I don't know what psychologists will do that with that, but to me, it was the most immediate sense of the presence of God I had ever experienced with one exception. Well, on Thursday, I flew back to Louisville. My, car, my automobile was there. I landed in Louisville about 12 o'clock at night. So I got in my car and started for Wilmore. Usually it takes me about an hour and a half to drive from the airport in Louisville to Wilmore. I think that's the longest trip I ever took because the closer I got to Wilmore, the slower I drove. And I thought, what am I going to do when I get there? Am I ready to walk into the presence of God? Uh, it was sort of a terror that filled me. And I drove slower and slower. And about 2 o'clock, I got out of my car. And I thought, what will I do? Now, Asbury is a small academic institution. And the president is, in a sense, almost like a father figure to some. And I thought, some of these students may grab me and pull me to the platform. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. So I slipped into the back of the auditorium as I came up the steps. I passed two student leaders, one guy who runs for student body president. And as I walked past him, he turned to me and smiled, grinned, and said, you missed it. I said, oh, he said, you missed it. So I went on in. I sat down in the back corner seat in the auditorium, as far away from the pulpit as I could get, and tried to look as inconspicuous, invisible as I could look. And I sat for about an hour and a half, sensing what God was doing. After about an hour and a half, a girl came back, had spotted me, and she came back to me. She was a pianist on what was probably the best witness team on campus that was out every weekend in churches witnessing. And I was sitting on the end of the, the end seat, and so she knelt on the floor next to my seat. And she looked at me and she said, Dr. Kenlaw, may I talk with you? And I sensed her seriousness, so I said, why yes, why don't we slip downstairs in a classroom where we'll be free to talk? And so I slipped downstairs in the classroom and she came with me. We sat down and she looked across at me. She said, Dr. Kenlaw, I lie. I lie so much I don't even know when I'm lying. What must I do? Now, you know, I wasn't prepared for that. But before I knew what I was doing, I said to her, well, if you, why don't you find the last person you lied to and ask him to forgive you and then work your way back? She looked at me in horror and said, oh, that would kill me. I said, no, I suspect it would free you. Well, we prayed together and she left. Three days later, she caught me on campus and she said, Dr. Kinlaw, Dr. Kinlaw. She was ecstatic. She said, I'm free. I'm free. I said, what do you mean? Oh, she said, I just hit my 34th person. 
and I'm free. Now, I appreciated what short accounts with God. When you've got something that's out of kilter needs to be fixed, it needs to be fixed. And revival, that's exactly what happened. When a professor, a doctor in the Bible department stands up on the platform and pleads with the students to forgive him because he had gone into classes not as well prepared as he ought to, you know that something more than the natural is taking place. If you don't, you don't know anything about academics. <laughs> but uh, we saw that kind of thing. Now, as, as, as people got their, got their inner hearts right with God, clean, you know, what God said to, what Isaiah found when he faced God was, woe is me because I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. So it was a cleaning of the inner heart, of parts of us that were there. And you, you heard some of this here. But it was as in addition to that, it was a, a, a quickening of life for people who had had just a form of religion instead of the reality of the thing. And form turned into reality for a lot of people. Uh, I, had, I had a friend who had been a student when I was here. We worked together in the bakery as students, and I knew him. He was in the, from the Salvation Army. He later became the national commander of the Salvation Army, and at one time was considered for the generalship of the World Salvation Army and was the second person in the, in the, in the running for it. Very, very significant person. He had a daughter here. And uh, these, this was 1970. You know, you all have your private cell phones now, but in 1970, uh, there weren't too many phones around. And so the students would go to the dormitory for telephone and line up to call and tell their family and others. Well, Susie came and got in that line. And when she got her father and her mother in New York, he was in New York with the Salvation Army, public relations man in the Army. She, he, when she called, her dad said, Susie, what's wrong? Because they had an agreement that she would not spend money calling home unless it was an emergency. So he said, what's the emergency? She said, well, Daddy, I called to tell you that today I found God. And the Salvation Army officer said, Susie, what do you mean you found God? You've known God for years. She said, no, Daddy, I've never known God before, but today I found God. He said, honey, think of all the summer camps that you've worked in all the street meetings that you've been in, all the testimonies you've ever given. What do you mean you found God? She said, Daddy, I never did anything, any of those things because I loved God. I did those things because I loved you and wanted your approval. But she said, today I found God. He, was, he knew me and he said, What's that Ken Law guy trying to do down there? That's the greatest compliment I ever got. She said, Daddy, apparently you don't understand, but today I found God. She spent her life in remarkable Salvation Army work. 
Her father told me, he said, you know, when we finished that conversation, my wife and I were in the bedroom. She got down on one side of the bed and I got down on the other. And we asked God to forgive us for not understanding. He said two weeks later, she came to Connecticut to witness on a witness team and said, we went to here. And he said to me, Denny, he said, she was right. She found him. <laughs> she knew him. Now that's the kind of thing that happened. And there was story after story like that. We had a boy who was editor of the Collegian, very bright, an honor student, uh, national honor student. And uh, he uh, skipped chapel that morning. And he uh, was not sympathetic to what we were about at Asbury at all. And he had an 11 o'clock mathematics class. And so when he went to class, the mathematics professor had skipped class too, skipped chapel too. So here the two of them sit. And 11 o'clock comes, only two. 11.5, only two. 11.10, only two. 11.15, only two. And uh, <laughs> the student and the prep professor looked at each other and said, something must be happening in chapel. So uh, the editor of the student newspaper said, well, maybe there's a story there, and maybe I ought to go see what's happening. So he went into Hughes, and he told me, he said, I couldn't take it. So he said, I went to my room, and he said, I tried to hide there. And he said, I couldn't take that. So he said, that afternoon, after lunch, I went back to Hughes, and I couldn't take that. So I went back to my room. And he said, when I got back to my room, my roommate was there. He said, you'd have laughed if you could have seen us moping around that room. He said, finally, one of them looked at the other one and said, both of us need to go to Hughes and get right with God and get the hell out of this room. So he came. And he spent an hour and a half kneeling at the altar. And when he arose, he was a transformed person. Now there's a second side to that story, a second chapter to it. We had a man on our staff who was an excellent evangelist, a fellow by the name of Andrew Goldman. Probably influenced more young men to go into the ministry than any person in our circles I ever met. He had influenced me profoundly in just exactly that way. He was a little older than I was and a wonderful person. I got an invitation to go to New York to meet with all the Salvation Army officers in the New York area to share about the revival. And I couldn't go. And so uh, I said to Andy, Andy, would you go? He said, I'll go if you'll let me take a student with me. I said, fine. So he got the editor of the Collegian to go. So this boy, who had said to his roommate, we need to go get the hell out of this room. He said, uh, they found themselves in a resort in the mountains outside of New York, the Catskills, a very plush ski lodge. And so all the people, the skiers were coming and going. And so the Salvationists met in a room like this that had a glass wall in front of it. 
so that anybody passing could see what was taking place. And uh, Andy spoke for just a few minutes. He's a very wise person. And he put the editor of the Collegian up. So the editor of the Collegian stood up. And he said, My mother was a widow, so I never had a father. My mother was Italian. My father was Irish. My mother had uh, was an invalid, so that she could not walk and uh, easily, and usually moved around in a wheelchair. He said. Uh, when I was eight years of age, she took me to the Salvation Army and said, when an invitation was given, my mother slowly with difficulty went and knelt at the penitent form. He said, I was eight years of age, so I went with her. He said, there were two Salvation Army officers standing behind the altar. And I could hear them talking. And one of them said, she's a wop, isn't she? And the other one said, yes, and look at those clothes she wears. And he said, I stood up and stared him in the face and said, damn you to hell. And he said, I turned and walked out. That was the end of my interest in Christianity. I don't know how he said I got trapped at Asbury. He said, but something happened to me. <laughs> and then he told them about how God had changed his heart and how God had put forgiveness in his heart for those Salvation Army officers and forgiveness for the sins that had been committed against him. There was a woman officer in the back who got up, came forward, and plopped right down on the floor. No altar, just plopped. And the whole place turned into a Pentecost. Now that young fellow has been a Marine officer of high rank in the United States military. And I heard from him. He sent me a Marine cup the other day, recently. But that's the kind of thing that happened. I could keep going for a long time with the different stories of what took place. But one of the incredible things to me was the way it really was not something that we could produ we produced in any way. But there was something about it when you tell the story, it would be reproduced. I had a friend, a classmate of mine from college days, who was pastor of the home church for Olivet Nazarene University. And he was having, they were having a revival in his church. He said, we had a quartet, a very good quartet, everybody loved to hear male quartet sing. And he said, things were going well. And he said, Saturday night I was in my study with the evangelist and with, and with the evangelist and we were getting ready for the service. He said, about 10 minutes before the service was to begin, 
one of my ushers walked in and he said, Pastor, there are two boys out here from Asbury College and they say that God has come to Asbury College and he told them to come tell us. He said, would you repeat that? And the usher said, there are two boys out here that are students at Asbury College. He said, they came in on a motorcycle. He said, they say that God has come to Asbury College. And he told them to come and tell us. And the pastor said, man, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I didn't know who they were. I couldn't trust that. So he said, I looked at the evangelist and said, what do you think? The evangelist said, this is your church, not mine. <laughs> and uh, the pastor, who was a good man, devout, wonderful, a wonderful person, had a great ministry. Uh, he said, uh, would you bring them in? So in came these two nondescript looking boys who dressed from their motorcycle riding. And he said, I didn't like their looks. They weren't dressed for church. <laughs> he said, I looked at him and they said, Sir, God has come to Asbury College and he told us to come tell you. And they said, he said, well, what do you want to do? They said, well, that's not our problem. He just told us to come and tell you. He said, well... Would you like five minutes to share with the audience? That'd give you two, that'd give you a few minutes of peace. And they said, that's up to you. We've done what God told us to do, so we're clear. <laughs> that's, that's up to you. He said, okay, we'll give you five minutes. So he said, the music got started and sang. He said, I stood up and said, we have two students here. He said, they were sitting down on the front row. He said, I didn't like the way they were dressed or the way they looked, but he said, there they were. He said, I said, uh, we have two students here from Asbury College who say that something unusual is happening at Asbury and they want to tell us. The first guy stood up and very simply spent about uh, a minute and three quarters talking. And then the second one stood up and within four minutes they had finished everything they had to say and sat down. And... Uh, Don told me, he said, with great relief, I thought, well, we got through that. <laughs> he said, we introduced the quartet, and the quartet started singing. They sang the first verse and were ready to sing the second verse. And one of the members, my memory is it was a bass, but I don't know. As they started to sing, he raised his hand and said, wait. I need God. And I need him now. And he walked down out of the pulpit and went to the altar and knelt. And at 10 o'clock that night, there were more people in the church than there were at 8 o'clock. And it spread over Chicago. Now you explain to me the power of that. <laughs> you see, what we're dealing with is not human stuff. What we're dealing with is divine stuff. And when he comes, he can do things that you and I dream about and long to see, but we can't produce. You say, well now, does it just happen automatically, spontaneously, sovereign, descent of the Spirit? 
No. I had thought a lot about why it happened at Asbury. And I decided it happened at Asbury because we needed it worse than anybody else. Because between 1965 and 1968, the college went through a great time of crisis. In fact, it continued into, 19, into 1968. Change of administration. A lot of people alienated from each other. Faculty resigned. It was just a mess. And here the students were in the middle of this and some faculty who were very grieved by what was taking place. So they started praying, individually. But in the fall of 1969, there was a girl here, my memory is she was a junior. She was a missionary kid from Columbia. And she was not a campus leader, humble kind of kid. Uh, not not particular not particularly popular, but she had a great hunger for God. So she decided she'd pray for God to do something on the campus. So she got her a bunch of three by five cards and put the name of every student on campus on those cards. Then she put the names of all the faculty and the names of all the administrators, and she carried those with her all the time. If she got to chapel five minutes early, she'd pull her cards out and she'd start praying. If she got, was in the cafeteria and had a break of her son, she'd pull her cards out. If she got to class early, she'd pull her cards out and start praying. In September, she found five other students and there was a pamphlet that was circulating on campus called The Great Experiment, in which the appeal was to get 10, she got six, that would get up every morning at 5.30 and pray from 5.30 to six, and keep a record of what their praying was. Read so much scripture, spend a certain amount of time every day doing something for somebody else, they had five commitments they would make, one of which was they'd meet together each week and check up on each other as to whether they'd done their, done their discipline. And so all through October, they did that. It made such a difference in their lives that they decided they wanted to see others in it. And so they looked around and found each one of the six found five more. And so you had 36. And they committed. You made a commitment for 30 days. That's all, for 30 days. They made a commitment that in January they would run that experiment. And so they did, 36 on campus. It caught the attention of the administration, and they asked for permission to share with the student body in a chapel service. And so we gave them the chapel for the 31st of January, which was a Saturday. And so 36 students were on the platform, and they told about the change that had taken place in their lives by that prayer time, discipline, scripture, commitment to each other, checking up on each other. They had in every seat 
a play, uh, a, a slip of paper to make a commitment, and they wanted they, their ambition was to get every student in the student body in one of those prayer groups. Uh, well, the interesting thing is, in connection with that, they asked for the privilege of a Friday night all night prayer meeting, and so we said yes. So we let them have youth auditorium. So these students would meet and others would meet with them on Friday night and they would pray on into the night. Didn't always pray all night long, but my wife took part in that and went because she was carrying the burden for the institution. Well, in, I think it was in that last week of January, no, a week before that, when they met, very earnest in their praying. Very earnest in their praying. Along about 1.30 in the morning, one of them said, he's coming. And the other said, oh. They said, she said, yes, he's coming. So let's thank him and go home. So they all thanked the Lord that he was coming and went home and went to sleep. They expected it to happen in that next chapel but it didn't. So Saturday they were disappointed. But on Tuesday morning, February 3rd, he came. And that's, and that's the only way I know how to explain it. He came. Now, it wasn't just an accident. There was this preparation and hunger and seeking and it was, there, there were many that had that burden and so he honored us, honored the need of our hearts and the need of our institution and the need of the need of the world. And then he came. That's the reason when every reporter that came to campus was as reverent as could be. Everyone that called in was cynical. <laughs> and one of those cynical ones said to me, how do you explain this? And I said, sir, I doubt if you'll understand it. But the only way I know how to explain it is last, Sunday, last Tuesday morning, about uh, 10 of 11, or about quarter of 11, Jesus Christ walked into Hughes Auditorium, and a community has been paying tribute to his presence, manifest presence ever since. I couldn't keep my wife out of, out of Hughes Auditorium. <laughs> she didn't want to go home and cook for me. <laughs> She wanted to be there the same way you would want to be there if Jesus literally showed up today. Somewhere on this campus, you'd be looking him out, seeking him, but he was here. Now, what's the significance of this? We've seen it. Does he want to do it again? I think he does. Does he want to do it in your country? Does he want to do it in your church? You know, I never, you know, somebody asked me something. I said, well, you know, one divine moment when God really acts is worth more than all the rest of human history put together if he's not there. And uh, it can happen. It can happen through you. Uh, and so that's my prayer for you. Our world is in such a mess. It's so far from God. How the Father's heart must 
grieve over his world. And he wants to draw it back to himself. And the only way he can ever do it is people just like you and me sitting in this room. Oh, that he might give us a passion, that we might be instruments of revival.